Good evening, everyone, and welcome back to 5 by 15. We are so pleased to be kicking off our season of In Conversation events for 2023 with two extraordinary writers this evening. We're in for a real treat. Pico Ayer, who's joining us tonight from New York, is an acclaimed travel writer and the author of 16 books, which have been translated into 23 languages. His journalism appears regularly in the New York Times and the Financial Times, and his TED Talks have over 11 million views. In his new book, The Half-Known Life, Finding Paradise in a Divided World, he reflects upon his years of travel and wonders what kind of paradise can ever be found in a world of unceasing conflict. The search for paradise is in some ways a timeless one, but the reflections found in Pico's book feel especially timely today. His journey takes him from Iran, where the word for paradise itself originates from, to North Korea, Japan and the Australian outback. We're delighted that Pico will be in conversation this evening with Catherine May, an internationally best-selling writer and podcaster. Catherine is the author of several memoirs, including Wintering, and the host of the How We Live Now podcast. Her extraordinary new book, Enchantment, Reawakening Wonder in an Exhausted Age, will be published in March. Our format tonight is the same as usual. Pico and Catherine will speak for around 45 minutes and then we'll have 15 minutes to hear your questions. So please do post them in the Q&A box at any time during the event. Information about our speakers' books will also be posted in the chat. So do keep your eyes peeled for that. Catherine, over to you. Hi, good evening. Um, so glad to be here tonight with Pico. Hi, Pico. <laughs> Hi, Catherine. I'm so happy to meet you. And, and <laughs> thank you, Jack, for bringing us together. And I'm so happy to be with my old friends at 5 by 15 again. Ah, oh, it's lovely. And just tell us where you are tonight. I'm in Whitstable and you are the other side of the Atlantic. <laughs> yes, I'm in a sort of monastic cell of a hotel room here in Midtown <laughs> Manhattan, hence perhaps the cacophony around me. No, you are you are loud and clear, and it's wonderful. Um, I am so excited to talk to you about the half known life tonight. I was going to wave my copy, but I've got the American copy, so it's completely inappropriate. Um, so, so you'll have to wave yours instead, please. <laughs> I have, yeah, I do like to have the English copy. <laughs> Yay! I'll show everyone the American copy too, because it's always lovely to compare covers. I think. Um, I am. I've got so much to ask you about this book because it it's a real it's a real genuine i mean we say thought provoking a lot and very casually um but this is a book that situates us in so many places in the world that are constantly in the news at the moment and which asks for me huge questions about about the future of our spiritual life i think um but which also doesn't try to answer them you know it, it's a book that that gives us the opportunity to think for ourselves um and i i always really really value that can can i just ask how it how this this began this project because it's it's very very wide-ranging yes i mean i think it's really a product of the pandemic uh, and it's not in the book so you may not know but 20 hours after lockdown was announced in california my poor mother, who was 88, was rushed into hospital in an ambulance because she was losing blood at a frightening rate. And of course, I couldn't visit her there. And I was off in our little apartment in Japan. But as soon as she came home, I took these three flights to Ghost Town Airports to be with her. 
And I was really with her for the next, as it happened, final 15 months of her life. And I think all of us during the pandemic, in some ways, we were living so close to death, it made us think how we wanted to live. And mm. we're always living in a state of uncertainty. I mean, right now, you and I and nobody else can say what's going to happen tomorrow or tonight. But that was especially acute, I think, at the heart yeah. of the pandemic. And so I was just trying to think, given that life is always difficult, how can we begin to find calm or contentment in the midst of uh, sort of inarguable challenges and, and losses? Uh, and so also, because I got to spend so long in one place as I wouldn't ordinarily, uh, I was thinking back on my 48 years of endlessly crisscrossing the globe and thinking through some of the places that would present themselves perhaps as paradise. And I suppose trying to cut through my many projections about them. And I love the way that you said it's it's challenged us to think about the future of our spiritual lives. And I suppose I was thinking a lot about the present, you know, right here, right now. We're surrounded by flames, as it were. Um, how do we maintain some sense of clarity and purpose? Mm. But it, the interesting link that you make is how often these paradises on Earth are in conflict zones or are subject to kind of their contested spaces. Um, and in some ways, they seem to cause conflict by their nature of being a paradise. That, that's the kind of true Shangri-La sort of affair um and and others just just seem to be in the wrong place at the wrong time maybe what's is there a connection is that coincidental what's going on there i think it's not coincidental because <laughs> your vision of paradise is probably very different from mine uh and if we start clinging to our sense of what paradise ought to be we're instantly in contention and just as you say right at the middle of this book is jerusalem and what strikes any visitor to Jerusalem is not just that the three great monotheisms, which to some extent share lineage, are all at odds, but even within them, Shia Muslim is against Sunni Muslim, ultra-Orthodox Jew is shouting at his secular cousin. And when you go to the really the holiest place in Christendom, the, the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, six Christian orders share the same roof. And yet if the Franciscans step one inch over the Greek Orthodox territory, they'll start going at one another with prunes. <laughs> and, and that's why I'm laughing, there. but it's, yeah, it's tragic. Yeah, I mean, it, sounds, it, it sounds too funny to be true, but they almost mm -hmm. come to war at, at that place. I remember even when I was young, the Pope himself wasn't allowed to pray in the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. And so that's why right after um, that chapter on Jerusalem, I do have what I think of as almost the central figure in this book, the Dalai Lama, uh, who wonderfully is one of the most cherished and respected religious figures on the world, on the planet, and published a book titled Beyond Religion, because I think he's, just as you were saying, he's had this front seat view on how the religions that are meant to unite us pull us apart as every mm -hmm. form of ideology or, or theory does. And as I was listening to you talking, I was realizing that one of the reasons it's called a half-known world is if you think you know everything or you're in possession of the truth, then instantly you're excluding much of humanity and there follows a, a contest, as you were saying. And also, of course, places suffer from being deemed a paradise. And so, as you remember, I have a chapter in Sri Lanka and it's great tragedy, as with Kashmir, is that everyone has thought of it as an Arcadia. And so the Dutch, the Portuguese, the British, yeah. the millions of us tourists are going to get a, a piece of paradise. Um, mm. And it's usually a paradise that the paradise to the tourist is <laughs> seldom so for the local. Yes, and I I wondered actually about that 
the, I mean, you, you know, you are one of the great travel writers, you are a, a sort of incessant wanderer of the globe. But is there a sense that our our love of travel is destroying the most the most not just the most beautiful place on earth, but the most sacred places now? Is you know, is there very appeal now becoming a, a, a sort of danger? I don't worry about that so much. As you know, I live near Kyoto, which has 1,600 Buddhist temples. And the number of tourists to Kyoto from internationally has gone up from about 1.5 million to 31 million in a few years this century. Wow. Just certain of the little lanes leading up to the golden temples are so crowded, they're impassable. But mm-hmm. I still feel that anybody who goes there will catch the spirit of the place. And it survived 1,200 years of wars and visitors and and changes. So I I have faith in the durability of charismatic places to endure the rest Mm -hmm. of us. And when I was speaking about Jerusalem, one thing that fascinates me, of course, is that, as you said, the city of faith is a city of conflict and has been for thousands of years. I'm not a Muslim or a Christian or a Jew. And yet when I go there, something stirs me. Mm-hmm. magnetically pulls me um, as almost nowhere else. And every day in the pre-dawn dark, I will go down a little lane and I'll find myself in a small side chapel in the Church of the Holy Sepulchre where there's nothing but little ragged space and a rocky ledge and a flickering candle. And there's something about that place, maybe because of the 2,000 years of devotion or worship that have surrounded it, that really brings me almost to tears, even though I'm not a part mm-hmm. of that religion. So have great faith in, in places still to stir us. It's maybe our thoughts or dogmas about the places that, that divide us. Um, yeah, this this kind of propensity of humans to fall into factions at the, <laughs> the least little thing. And to what what I think I, I picked up from, from your book over and over again was actually how small the differences need to be in order for us to fall into factions. Just these minute shifts in meaning or I don't know perceived fact and fiction but also uh the the sort of slights that that we hold close to our hearts across the centuries um we we fall apart so easily yeah no that's beautifully said that the narcissism of small differences I think Freud called it Mm, yeah and I think what you just said is actually the reason why I so want to experience the world in the round and in the flesh. And I'm guessing, because this is largely an English audience, most of the people listening to us know this because English are great travelers. But I find whenever I'm sitting at home, if I think about Iran or North Korea, Belfast, the places I visit in this book, all I think is about how different they are, ideologically, historically, culturally, from where I'm sitting in California or Japan. And of course, as soon as I get there, I encounter a human reality um, that, that's instantly recognizable. And I get off the, the plane in Tehran or Damascus, for example, and a taxi driver is complaining about the government and he's worried about the economy and he's fearful for his kids. And he sounds just like the one I just left in New York City or just like me. <laughs> that matter. Taxi drivers the world over. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. And humans the world over. In other words, what I worry about, and one reason I called it the half-known life, is the sense that in this age of information, I feel we know less about the rest of the world than ever before. Mm. And we know least of all about the countries we hear most about, such as Iran or North Korea or Yemen or Cuba, the places I try to go to, because we know a lot about their economies or their governments or their nuclear policies, but I think painfully little, unless we visit, about just daily life and regular people. We we hear the word North Korea and we see just one face, not 25 million others, which is just what that one face needs. 
and yeah. longs for. And of course, when you go to North Korea, you mention the word USA and they see one face and not 300 million mm. others. Um, so I do think there are ways of cutting through these divisions, but as long as we're barricaded behind our assumptions or theories, <laughs> we're probably going to be as divided as ever. And that, I mean, I that that struck me very forcibly when you visited Belfast, funnily enough, because in lots of ways that was the conflict that I grew up here, that felt close to home, you know, that, that I heard a lot about in my childhood, but that also it, it felt like it could spill over into my own territory. And so there was this real sense of, of threat, of tangible threat, you know, and uh, my grandmother wouldn't let us go to London during the troubles because she was so convinced that, you know, that we'd get blown up. Um, and it, that there's this sense that you you visit Belfast and this this place opens up into complexity. It, it's like we only see the cracks on the news, and 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 it makes you conscious of how small those flashpoints have to be in order to have global repercussions, and how most of life is flowing on all around those those cracks. Exactly. Just as you say, I think every notion of black and white or right and wrong, right and left even, fall mm -hmm. away as soon as you visit somewhere um, face to face, as it were. And yeah. I, I'm older than you, but I had exactly that same experience growing up yeah. in England. Every yeah. day, a bomb in London, a conflict in Londonderry. Uh, and I brought all kinds of those assumptions to Belfast when mm -hmm. I visited just before the pandemic. And of course, the people there realize that conflict is one of its main tourist draws. So they're keen to kill <laughs> well, you. The, the, yeah. Sites, the, the sites of um, fighting in the past, but I found this very global, prosperous city. I was shown around with great pride by a lawyer who had lived there for 38 years called Mr. Ayer from South India, like myself, who rejoiced in being in such a wonderful place. The uh, Game of Thrones is partly shot there. The yes. Titan was built yeah. there, so that's a big tourist site. But as you know, um, from having read the book, really the key moment came this Sunday morning, almost the longest day of the year, when my wife and I went out to East Belfast, which is the industrial area, which traditionally associated with the shipbuilding yards, these mm -hmm. long lines of red brick semi-detached houses. And to be honest, it couldn't have looked bleaker and more unprepossessing. And we were walking down this long road of very modest houses and we saw this little plaque saying Van Morrison was born here. And I think the reason that Van Morrison captivates so many of us all these years later is not just his majestic voice, but that over and over in his songs, he's, ev he's evoking Arcadia, some yeah. golden paradise we sensed in our youth or that we can glimpse mm -hmm. here and there, even mm -hmm. in the green fields of England. And I thought, how amazing that growing up with no advantages in this really unpromising district, nonetheless, this young boy could come up with this unshakable faith in, in something better. And it really gave me confidence um, to see beyond the immediate conflicts and that almost circumstances immaterial to our capacity to see the prospect of a better life or a better world, or better self at least. Well, I must admit, um, I, you know, I've known Brown Eyed Girl all my life. I'd not realised how specific mm -hmm. the places were that he was referring to. And of course, that's part of a big tradition, not just in music, but of creating a, a, a place that transcends time from mundane locations and, and actually naming them. And there's something very magical in that for me when people make a heaven on earth it's like it reminded me of william blake seeing angels in the trees on peckham right 
Exactly, Wordsworth too. So, so yeah. many of them. Um, yeah, that that's wonderfully said. Uh, and as you know, my book concludes in Varanasi, and mm. I don't actually include this in the book, so you probably wouldn't know. But at oh, one point, anyone who's been to Varanasi <laughs> knows that in all of shocking, intense, crazy India, it's the most shocking, most intense, most crazy place. Your flames are burning to the north and south through the day and the night, reducing dead bodies to ash, and people are racing through the narrow lanes, carrying stretchers, committing corpses to the flames and to the holy waters, and naked ascetics uh, strutting around, smeared in ash, living in graveyards and drinking from skulls to show their indifference to conventional morality. And people are delightedly drinking in these waters that are 3,000 times higher, according to the World Health Organization, than the maximum level of bacteria considered safe for consumption. And I was standing there surveying this Boschian kind of psychedelic confusion once. Suddenly I heard somebody call my name and it was two Tibetan monks, one an elderly Tibetan and one a younger American who has been appointed by the Dalai Lama as the first Westerner in history to head a Tibetan Buddhist monastery in Southern India. And the American monk surveyed the same scene I'd been looking at. He said, isn't this glorious? This is reality. This is birth and death and everything in between. Mm. This is what we have to embrace. This is, as to use your phrase, um, heaven on earth. This is the the paradise of Peckham right here in Varanasi. (laughs) I'm sort of humbled by that. But it was a reminder of what I think we all know, that paradise at some level is just a way of seeing and then a way of being in the world. It's relatively unrelated to the circumstances around us and very much related to what we bring to them. Um, yeah. And, and yeah, Van Morrison and Blake are, are, are perfect examples. Uh, there he was building Jerusalem amidst those dark satanic mills. Yeah, absolutely. That, that, that full, that, that visionary nature and that, that kind of ability to be a mystic in very ordinary circumstances and 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 what many people would consider to be degraded circumstances and actually some of our greatest mystics have risen out of degradation rather than comfort and privilege like it it doesn't seem to build a, a an insight into the human condition it, it, it as the buddhists would say very clearly it's it's suffering that that shows us so much about life i suppose yes and and as virginia wolf says i think you don't find peace by running away from life. You have to find it in the thick of life and in the face of death. And as you know, there's one chapter about Sri Lanka called the Lotus in Mud, that Buddhist image of how the lotus rises out of this most squalid and mm. muddy of surroundings. And although, of course, <laughs> I, I'm not a mystic or not necessarily a religious person, I'm so glad what you were saying initially, because in each of these places in the book is really a question, as you said at the outset. And I'm deliberately trying to make it as untopical as possible, because I think following the moment by moment political realities, as in Belfast or yeah. Iran, obscure something much larger and more enduring and uh, much deeper. And so it's, for example, when I went to Iran, I actually wrote a long 20 page political piece of reportage, because I was there at this historic moment when their president was talking to the US president for the first for the first time in 38 years. But when I published my, when I included Iran in this book, I kept, took out all the dates and all the details mm-hmm. so that it wouldn't be a report of how Iran is at a particular moment, 
But how Iran is in our imagination and what it has to say to people 50 years from now and how it fits into um, a larger puzzle. So this is almost Mm. an unpolitical book that's aiming at something human, which almost by definition uh, outlasts political convulsions. And of course, things have changed in Iran since I was there. But at some level, character of Iran, I don't think has changed, nor do I expect it to change um, in the next Mm. 50 years. So in each case... I was trying to extract them from um, this momentary context and right. show how they are in, in a larger scheme, maybe. Perhaps extracting it from the temporal. Um, I just want to pause because I want to hear more about Iran because I'd love to I'd love to get you to do some storytelling about your time there. Um, yeah. But I just wanted to say to everyone listening, um, I will be taking questions at the end. So please do use the Q&A box to add your questions now. I'm, I'm not reading them as I go along, but but we will get to them, I promise. So if thoughts are arising, get, get them down now because uh, I, I know you'll be delighted to answer them later. Um, so Iran... This, I mean, this place that you said has, has bedazzled you since since boyhood. Um, yes, again, we have such great expectations of what Iranians will be like, and that's based on our vision, accurate or not, of the Iranian state. And of course, more recently, we've seen what for me are these extraordinarily stirring images of, of women rising up against the the constraints that they've been living under and and the the huge personal bravery of the protesters and and the very very genuine peril that they face by by protesting but you know iran has this absolutely unparalleled literary and creative history that I think we're barely aware of in the West, and unless we, you know, have been particularly interested in that area, and and you, you kind of not went in search of it. Actually, it often found you. But I'd I'd love you to talk about the what you found in Iran, what it was like to be there, what it was like to be in a in a you know surveillance state, um, and a, about the beauty that that is there, and, and which is probably invisible to a lot of us. Yes, I mean, of course, there's so much I could say about um, Iran. <laughs> and I started the book there partly because it's the most formidable theocracy in the world. It's built around a vision. Mm. And just as you were saying, the protests have reminded us that the ruling clerics have one very distinct vision of paradise, which is in the afterlife and is reserved for those who give up their lives for the revolutionary cause, uh, martyrs often very young boys who run into the enemy guns formerly in Iraq get fast-track entry into that paradise. And so many Iranian citizens, like the ones we're seeing in the streets, construct their own very sensuous, worldly visions of paradise behind closed doors, often mm-hmm. based on sex and drugs and rock and roll. And as you were saying at the end, both of them quote the great Sufi mystical poets that whose words they commit to heart in uh, mm. the Iranian classrooms, such as Rumi, who says the only paradise you can find has to be within. And I loved what you said about our assumptions about Iran, because I had plenty of those, because I had been I, following it for 30 years. I'd written a long article about Iran in the 1980s uh, based on colleagues' reports for Time magazine. Then I'd financed my first book with a 20-page article on Iranian history. And then I'd spent four years reading up on and researching everything I could get about Iran to publish a 350-page novel, partly set there. And within four hours of arriving, I saw I didn't know a thing. 
Um, every assumption was toppled. And I thought I was quite well, well prepared. And my very first night there, um, I stole away from my official guide and I went down to the taxi desk in the lobby and they introduced me to somebody in his late 20s, very friendly, um, who spoke surprisingly good English. And he offered to take me to the central shrine, which is, in fact, the largest mosque in the world, seven interlocking marble courtyards. And when we got there, because this was the most festive week of the year, it was the birthday of the um, saint long buried in that shrine. We couldn't barely move everywhere. There were people seated on the ground, sipping tea, stretched out to sleep because they were spending seven days and seven nights there, releasing doves into the blue black sky. And they were surrounded by these huge video screens on which black turbaned ayatollahs were delivering um, prophecies and, and sermons. It was really a scene. And my new friend, the driver, led me into the innermost sanctum, which is very, very small. And we quickly got separated. And at one point, I looked across the room and his hand was on his heart. He was walking backwards, so he would never present his back to the long dead saint. Uh, and there were tears welling in his eyes. He really seemed just the picture mm-hmm. of Islamic mm-hmm. piety. Yeah. But as you remember, when I was back out in the street, <laughs> he started telling me about his wife, who he said was a blonde English woman in Yorkshire, who was waiting <laughs> for him and waiting for their first baby. And then he told me how he had paid $2,500 to a human trafficker to smuggle him into England in the mm. back of the truck, breathing through a tube so he wouldn't be detected. And then he told me how the British government had very generously given him a court-appointed lawyer and translator, and they'd worked for three years to win him asylum status. So he'd risked his life to steal out of Iran and get to England. And now he was risking his life every summer to come back to see the mother and the hometown and the mosque that he missed so much. And when he dropped me off um, at my hotel that night, I thought, well, Iran, as you were saying, has been on our headlines every day for the last really many years. But I'd never heard about a dissident stealing back into the country he'd fled. And I never remembered hearing about a very faithful uh, Islamic soul who didn't want to live in this Islamic Republic. And so, again, it just reminded me how the amount I know, even though I thought I'd researched this tiny, surrounded by this vast darkness of things I never know and would never expect. And the last tiny quick thing I'll say, because you did Mm. mention earthly heavens, is that every hour for my 16 days there brought surprise. But one of the beautiful surprises is to find that nowhere I've been evokes an earthly paradise more sensuously and bewitchingly than Iran. I remember one day I stepped out of my hotel in the desert city of Yazd and it was dusk and there was a sound of running water and there were colored lights in the trees and I was led to a divan and I could stretch out and a waiter brought me slices of sweet watermelon and strong tea. (laughs) All around me were these beautiful dark-eyed people, you know, murmuring sweet nothings. I thought, goodness, this is as beautiful this as is actual on earth. Yeah. And they've cultivated those visions of paradise exquisitely for, for centuries, mm-hmm. even as there were these notions of paradise encircling them. Um, so anyone who gets a chance, I, I really hope you will go to Iran and block out the many things you've heard, because I'm guessing it won't conform to any of them. And did you feel safe there? I mean, it, it struck me that the the people that you asked about the risk of censure or surveillance, um, they seemed quite casual about the risks. You know, they, they seemed a, maybe a little blasé. Um, but you you did begin to worry a little, I think, and began to think about the, the footprint you were leaving in, in documentation terms. 
Yes, you're exactly <laughs> right. I mean, I think the, the locals know exactly how to work around um, the government's ever-shifting restrictions, but I was yeah. a complete neophyte. Uh, and so, yes, traveling on an American passport, as I was, and traveling with a view to writing about it, um, uh, culturally, more, more than in any other way, uh, I was always looking over my shoulder. And I remember my mm. first day there, um, I, I was so excited by everything I'd seen. I emailed all my friends with great ease back in California. My second day when I went online, my email was completely blocked, though oh, wow. I could go down to a hotel mm. computer and um, send messages with ease. But I thought, thought some poor guy in some Tehran office is busy reading all yeah, my messages. Reading. And although almost all my impressions were positive, I made sure yeah. to be as positive as possible in, in what I wrote. And so and so many foreigners are many very innocent foreigners. And I was a fairly innocent one, get apprehended just as they're leaving the country and, of course, <laughs> thrown into prison. Um, it's such a both a veiled and a vexed situation between Iran and the West. So um, I was more unsteady there than in many places. For example, in North Korea, which is the next place I cover in the book, they're savvy enough to know every foreigner who comes in is going to leave with exactly the same dismissive or smirking reports. And they're not really worried about that. I think right. in North Korea, their great fear is people coming to hand out Bibles. And those are the ones who get sent down to, into prison because North Korea has constructed its own religion. And so somebody who's coming with a missionary attempt is directly confronting and threatening to unsettle mm. everything mm. their state rests on. And so those are the more menacing people. They know that uh, writers and they're tourists, the they know what they're going to say, we're going to say in yeah. advance. And and what about your, I mean, you, you know, despite a deep background in various religions you know you 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 say that your mother can quote the bible backwards or could quote the bible backwards and forwards um and a, a sort of you know you're a companion to the dalai lama you're, you know you yes. have but you are nevertheless i don't know how to put it non-denominational and maybe maybe even not particularly a believer um I'd, I'd love to know how you phrase that better than me anyway, but but I'll ask the question to for you to respond to, which is how does that status outside of the major religions affect how you're treated when you go into these situations? Is it a benefit? Is it, does it, you know, separate you from from the true believers that you're you're spending time with? It probably does separate me from the true believers, but as I was saying in Jerusalem, I'm not immune to just the power of faith that shakes mm. the walls of the Western Wall in Jerusalem or the sound of the chants all around me in the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. It's interesting when I'm in Varanasi, I'm 100% Hindu by birth, but I feel a stranger and a foreigner even there. But as you can tell, I'm just swayed by the, the, the power of the place. Mm that sweeps you into a part of your mind that usually I don't occupy very much. And when you were saying, you said it very perfectly about being non-denominational, partly maybe because I've spent so much time with the Dalai Lama, who's always stressing the secular and science and mm. everything human and universal um, that joins us uh, and whose book was called Beyond Religion. And as you know, I conclude this book with the words of the wise Franciscan priest, Richard Rohr, who says, as a priest, our purpose is not to be spiritual, it's to be human. And so I think in every case in this book, I was looking at people with the wisdom and the humility to learn from traditions very different from their own and to see that they didn't have the answers. And so that's why another central figure here is Thomas Merton, Cistercian monk who after 27 years in his Trappist monastery in, in Kentucky, finally flew to Asia. 
and before two Buddhas in Sri Lanka had his great realization and found whatever really he'd been looking for spiritually in all his life, and then four days later died. And who on his way to Sri Lanka met the Dalai Lama and they had three excited talks watched, <laughs> exchanging monastic <laughs> tips. You know, are you a vegetarian? Are you allowed to watch movies? Uh, when you're allowed to do your post and all that kind of stuff. They're like car mechanics trading, trading uh, special uh, knowledge. Um, but the, the, I think the power of the Dalai Lama is that, for example, he delivers long lectures uh, before groups of Indi Christians in England on the Gospels. And tears come to his eyes uh, when he talks about the parable of the mustard seed. And he calls himself a defender of Islam. And he turns to rabbis for advice on how to sustain a culture outside its homeland. So when you were saying about me being a believer, I think the one thing I believe in is um, ideas and explanations don't help much. And that most of life takes place beyond our grasp and beyond our knowing. And so... Um, it's a self-evident truth. That's what happens when the virus appears or a forest fire burns down your house, as happened mm -hmm. to me. It's what happens mm -hmm. when you're in love. Um, so just, I want to have, just, I never want to forget that most of what is around me is sort of ineffable. Uh, and I'm fairly tiny and it's pretty big. And uh, <laughs> it would be presumptuous of me to assume I know anything about it. And in fact, as you remember, when I'm in Jerusalem, the single sentence that really resonates for me is uh, outside the Basilica of the Agony, I saw this sign aimed at tour guides saying, please, no explanations inside the church. <laughs> so I find that when I'm inside those churches, I really, as I said before, I'm stirred, but the, not by the explanations, by something. No, by the, the, the kind of spirit that moves beneath that. Yes. But, I, but you are, I don't know, carried along by... Uh, mass expressions of ecstasy you know you're you're able to enter into those i almost on an equal level to the mm. people that are making meaning around them it, 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 it i i think your book made me think something that i've often believed really which is that that i mean i, I suppose this is really what you've just been saying but that the the kind of conscious explaining and meaning making that we make around these moments or the the very defined ritual actually pales into significance next to the feeling that is generated by a group of people with shared intent to worship in the purest sense. And it, and it seems like you are able to, to enter into that on, a, on an equal basis to the, the people that have come there with belief. Well, thank you for seeing, seeing that, and thank you for saying that. And I was so touched when you did describe my, my book as ecstatic, because I think that's absolutely right. And I think, again, it's like falling in love. Um, everyone who's fallen in love has put it in the same terms, but any time you're in that state, you know words have nothing to do with it, really. And there's no explaining it away, and that's partly why you cherish it. Um, and so, for example, actually, I've just completing a companion book to this, about 31 years I've spent with a group of Benedictine monks um, in California, and I'm not Christian, but I've stayed with them more than 100 times. And I sometimes think, to really extend what you were saying, that silence is my big teacher. They're very open-minded Benedictine, so they don't foist any kind of belief on visitors, but they just assume if you're up unplugged, in a radiant setting for three days and three nights, you'll find something deep that gets lost on the freeway or the shopping mall. And that's something deep. It doesn't really matter what name you give to it, but it's something that you can't argue away. 
And so you're absolutely right. When I'm there, actually, I probably am in a more ecstatic state than the monks because they're working really hard. They're like, it's the every day to them. They just do. Yeah. <laughs> yes. And they're making sure that everything is as comfortable as possible so that uh, selfish visitors like myself can fly off into the <laughs> imperial or into infinity. Um, so, yes, I, I'm, I'm so grateful that um, I suppose as one nears the end of one's life, one thinks, which are the peak moments? Which are the moments that really flood one with light and make you believe that there's much more going on than otherwise you would imagine. And so I, I try to spend more and more of my time in those settings and less and less time maybe in the shopping mall yeah. if I can avoid it. Uh, and so you're right that uh, I think there's something contagious about prayer and devotion. Mm-hmm. I was just at a, at a Hindu convent in California two days ago. The minute I stepped out of my car, there's something about the silence there. It's not just the absence of noise. It's a positive presence. It's mm-hmm. pulsing. It's like panes of transparent glass that have been created just by the fact that, that they've been chanting or worshipping for so long. And as a visitor who isn't really part of their tradition, one still benefits from it. And I think, you know, for example, many people who meet the Dalai Lama, regardless of their religious orientation or lack of it, feel um, feel something there that's very attractive and maybe that mm. they want to learn from, that cuts through our notions of what it is to be a Buddhist or a non-Buddhist or an atheist. It's tan- it's tangible, yeah, definitely, and you, you feel it, it. Whatever place of worship you you enter, there's something that humans lay down that we we don't know how to describe yet, but but it's it's perceptible. But I, you know, I think for all you're saying, I think you're more comfortable than most mm. crossing between mm. those different traditions. You know, there's there's a lot of people who wouldn't spend time in a Benedictine monastery because they would feel either awkward or mm. politics would get in the way for them. Um, yeah. But yeah. but there's obviously a fluidity there for you that, that yeah. perhaps not everybody has. Um, and I, I was beginning to wonder if your status as a kind of fluid non-denominational, <laughs> which makes it sound very hip, um, and your, your work as a travel writer, I, I wonder if they maybe come for the same place that you're comfortable as a as an outsider looking into an insidership that 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 seems to be where you're at home you're exactly right and that's probably why i've made my home in the most foreign place of all which is japan <laughs> um, yeah you you couldn't be more right and in fact when i'm completing this book about my stay with the benedictine months i think the main thing i will stress is that I'm an outsider, that I'm a Catholic, but nonetheless, I can benefit from them the way I benefit from a doctor, perhaps, or medicine. Mm. And when I go to my doctor, I really don't mind what religion he is or isn't. I'm just grateful that he can offer something to make me feel better. And I think that's what monks and nuns in all denominations do. And you're absolutely right. You know, I was lucky enough, I suppose, to be in the early stages of what now is so common, which is having lots of cultures inside me. So I was born in Anglican England to... Uh, Hindu parents who are also theosophists, which meant they know a lot about many, a lot about all traditions. And in fact, my mother was a professor of contemporary religions, so they exposed me to a lot of things. And here I am, having lived 35 years in deeply Buddhist and Shinto Japan, while spending my time in in Benedictine <laughs> Hermitage. And in fact, my my full name is Siddharth Pico Raghavan Ayer. So my globalist philosopher <laughs> parents. <laughs> My name, me. My first name is the Buddha's name, and my second name is that of Pico della Mirandola, a Catholic heretic who is a Neoplatonist, and actually brought lots of religions together and fashioned a Christian Kabbalah in the 15th century. And my third name 
is my father's name, Raghavan, and he was, as they say, a theosophist. And my fifth name, Aya, is a very standard Hindu name that belongs to priests from southern India. So from the day I was born, I was carrying <laughs> four religious traditions. And of course, my life has taken me to many other places to amplify that. And I don't really want to partake of salad bar spirituality as it were. I take a little bit of Susiism and add it to some Christianity and make my own custom-made things. I don't think that probably is so deep, but I'm really lucky that as so many of us in the 21st century to be exposed to lots of different traditions. Um, and I've, I suppose I've chosen to be outside all of them because I feel comfortable and I've never really wanted to be part of a group, but I have learned from them the way one learns from individual friends met along the road or, or, or teachers. Mm. And of course, you've written in the past about how that uh, that's part of a growing global community of people who can move very fluidly across those those boundaries and are, and are most at home in that multitudinous identity rather than in, in, in one culture. Yes, and fluid is a beautiful, beautiful word to use because I think fixity is what entrenches us in our positions mm. and in our tribes. And Everybody knows, I think, that the world, though more connected than ever now, is more divided than ever. And probably that dividedness has to do with being too firmly entrenched in the sense that my way, my way or the highway, my way is the one, the only way. Uh, and the, mm-hmm. and I think the only way to get past that is not, it's not going to come at a social or collective level, but each individual just to open her heart, <laughs> mind yeah. a little bit. Well, I can see we've got lots of uh, questions building up. So I'd just like to ask you a final one before we move on. I've got hundreds more, but there we go. Um, always. <laughs> but I, I I, kind of wanted you to get you to conclude on, on quite a big question, really, which is what do you think is the... I don't know. This is this is a huge question, actually. How do you see the the state of the the human condition now? Do you do you feel optimistic for the direction we're headed, or you know, do do you kind of take in the pessimism that so many of us are feeling? Like, where where are we? I don't take in the pessimism, uh, and I'm not necessarily optimistic. I, I but I do believe each of what one of us has the choice really to determine at least our personal future. Of course, we're at the mercy of much larger forces when it comes to the environmental crisis and much else, warfare. But I think during the pandemic, I noticed that some people concentrated on what it made impossible in a state of constant frustration. And some people concentrated on the many new things it made possible and allowing some of us to live differently than we had before. It was like an enforced pause in which we could suddenly think, oh, I was going very fast along the wrong road. Maybe I can turn around. And so most of us in the world were facing the same conditions, but some saw it as an opening and some saw it just as as a closing. And I think that's how it is um, with almost everything. A couple of years ago, um, I wrote wrote a book about my life in Japan. And in Japan, life turns around this phrase that I've sometimes heard described as joyful participation in a world of sorrows. So being a Buddhist country, you mentioned earlier about suffering and Buddhism, they feel everybody's probably going to get sick. Everyone, if he's lucky, will face old age. Everybody dies. Suffering is non-negotiable. But what we bring to that suffering is almost much more than we might imagine in our hands. There's nothing good or bad, but thinking makes it so, as it said in Hamlet. Um, and so the fact of death and impermanence isn't doesn't mean we have to feel despairing. And actually, Look at the Dalai Lama. He's probably suffered more than anybody I know in life. And what he's famous for is his constant smile and his infectious yeah. laugh, his 
robust confidence. And I think many other of the people that I concentrate on uh, in, in this book. Uh, and as you recall, too, I begin the book by quoting Seamus Heaney. When um, Nelson Mandela was released from prison after 27 years, Heaney, who was writing a play about the Trojan War, no less, delivered these lines that now people quote all the time, rightly, which is, once in a lifetime, hope and history rhyme. And going back to the Northern Ireland we were discussing, growing up in Northern Ireland, Heaney knew as well as anybody that history leaves scars and memories that can never be erased. But he also knows a life without hope is no life at all. So I think we can't afford to be despairing. That's a self-fulfilling prophecy. I think we we have to head forwards with some degree of confidence um, mm. and, and clarity. Uh, but I think circumstances define us much less than what we do with circumstances. And so it's, it's really up to us. But I think I think despair is a bit of a cop out. <laughs> There's uh, um, Selena Godden has a, a poem, which is that uh, pessimism is for lightweights, uh, which <laughs> I think is a great way of putting it. <laughs> Yes, and you know, I almost want to. It, it, it's callous for me to say despair is is a cop out. Many people suffer from clinic, clinical depression. Most, many people are going through terrible sorrows, and of course, you have to grieve about them. But we're not completely powerless before that, and I think our minds are stronger than than we imagine. That's our our hearts, probably, and our spirits. And it's interesting how often people notice it's when we're challenged that the best in us comes out of us. Mm, wonderful. Okay. Well, we've got some really great questions here so i'm going to try and get through as many as we can so this is a little bit like the speed round pico <laughs> good luck to you we've got 15 minutes <laughs> um so the, the first question is so perfect i'm really impressed exactly 15 minutes you i'm so happy to be in the hands of an absolute <laughs> thank you sometimes i manage to notice the time not not always i'll have to say but tonight i'm on it um the first one's from a, an anonymous attendee uh, who says i love to travel but i struggle with the idea of long-haul flights when we know that flying is a major source of carbon emissions um we could say the whole planet earth has the potential to be a paradise but we humans are causing climate change we could destroy it i'd love to hear your thoughts on this yes so my sense I think the thrust of my book is paradise is right here, right now, if only we have the eyes to see it. And one of the things that really awakened me to that, and I'm sure many people in this conversation can relate to this, is that when I was stuck during lockdown in my mother's house and I couldn't travel as usually I might, I still needed to take exercise. I started taking walks on the road behind my mother's house. And it was usually early morning and there was sun rising over the ridge. And so certain of the mountains were flooded in golden light and other valleys were in thick fog. And I turned around and I'd see the Pacific Ocean just scintillant in the distance, an island so clear in the sharp air, I could almost count the ridges and the hills. And I would think, gosh, this is as beautiful as anything I would travel halfway across the world to see in Cape Town or Rio de Janeiro. Here it is in my backyard. And my parents have lived on that property for more than 50 years. And I'd never, till lockdown forced it, walk to the end of the road just 20 minutes away. And so for me, it was a salutary reminder to that very good question. We don't have to get on a long haul plane. We don't have to fly across the world to, to find beauty. In my case, all I had to do was just take the trouble to walk down the road. And I did the same thing in Japan. And it was equally full of wonders. So I just crossed the street and walked four minutes away from our flat. And I saw, came across a bamboo forest and uh, flowering cherry trees I'd never known were four minutes away by foot. And I think, um, yeah, one never wants to confuse distance by depth with depth. That my favorite traveler often is Henry David Thoreau, 
And he wonderfully said, it matters not how far you go, the further, commonly, the worse. What matters is how alive you are. And if you're alive to the place around you, that is as great a wonder as, as Tibet. So the environmental crisis, as, as the question perfectly points out, asks us, how can we begin to justify our travel? And if we can't, it doesn't matter. <laughs> Go across London, walk, yeah, take a walk on the, you know, the fields near your house. I think you can get just as much from that. And I might have a whole book just about to come out, which is on just that subject. So <laughs> in case anyone's curious. Okay. Um, <laughs> um, the next question is uh, from Alice, and this follows on really nicely from what you've just been saying. Um, how do you cultivate spirituality in yourself when you're not traveling? What are the what are your practices on a on a daily basis that are uh, not extraordinary that that are, that are ordinary to you? I know you don't meditate, which is always really interesting to me. No, I never meditated. I'm afraid I, I respect people who do. I've never practiced yoga or tai chi, and as you said, my practices are only ordinary. I don't think I could claim um, spirituality of any kind, but but I do try to make sure my inner life isn't completely erased by the deluge of external things. I'm lucky because as a writer, my, my job involves sitting still for almost all the day. Uh, so when I say I don't meditate, my wife rolls her eyes. I'm like, gosh, all this guy ever does is sit there not moving <laughs> and trying to cut beyond his, his thoughts and his chatter at, at his desk. So I wake up and I spend my five, first five hours at my desk and it's akin to leaving the clamor of the highway and going to a little quiet cabin in, in the woods. And one can't help but um, come out of that refreshed and a bit clearer than before. Most people don't have that luxury, but I think if you spend just 20 minutes sitting in a room without your devices at the beginning of the day, nothing spiritual about that, but the day will be transformed. And the other thing which we've touched on already is I do, though I'm not part of any religion, go on retreat four, four times a year at least, for only three days. And I find just three days without a telephone or a computer or anything instantly clears my head. And it's like having three months away. It's a better holiday than going to spend two weeks in Antarctica because it sends me back home a different person. So I'm a great believer in just going up, whether it's taking a walk or for going camping for three days or just unplugging even for three days. I think you'll come back really renewed. Um, mm. So nothing fancy in those, but... Uh, the world is so much shouting at us at every moment. I think all we have to do is separate ourselves from that and we can hear something deeper than our thoughts, probably. Yeah, for sure. Um, another questioner asks, how do you square the different religious or scriptural conceptions of paradise in your book? Um, are they compatible or are they always intention? Oh, that's, that cuts right to the heart of all of this, doesn't it? <laughs> can yeah. they get along? <laughs> Certain things I think they always have in common. They all talk about kindness, charity, concern for the suffering. Other things are very uh, distinctive and particular to each one. And it's those particularities that I flinch from because I think the only paradise I would believe in is one that's open to everybody, that's universal to some extent, uh, which is why I like to place it in the individual because almost every individual has that capacity to find it inside herself. Uh, and again, I feel that the doctrines that we impose on our beliefs are, are man-made by definition. Uh, and what we're looking for is something beyond the human and beyond the mortal. Uh, so uh, I, I don't delve so deeply 
into the particulars um, of each of the traditions that features in this book, for example. But I do feel that almost all of them um, do have do have a kind of humanity in common. Mm. Um, and sorry, I'm going to have to pick and choose these questions a little bit, everybody, because I can't ask all of them. Um, there's and, a and, and what I meant to say, actually, also just before <laughs> please carry on. what Catherine was saying much earlier is all of them in their mystical traditions, they're all almost interchangeable. So if you look at Rumi from Islam and Meister Eckhart from Christianity and the Zen teachers, and I gave you quotations from the three of them and some of the Hindu ecstatics, you wouldn't be able to tell which is which. Mm. So they certainly converge them. Sorry. Yeah. No, the, the direct contact remains the same and it's the 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 kind of explanation around them that that differs um and a a nice follow-up from that uh someone asks where do communes fit in attempts to live together in alternative ways um do you think they can ever be real paradises on earth that's an interesting take on this i think it's a very good interesting take on it i actually grew up in california in the 60s and 70s um encircled by communes and i felt the intention was always pure that the leadership was always human. And unfortunately, (laughs) humans are by definition fallible. Uh, And so one reason at the beginning of this book, I go to North Korea, and previously I'd spent a lot of time in Cuba and China and and collective utopias of a kind. And there's always so much to admire for me in the individual, at the individual level in those places, especially in Cuba, where it's the resilience and spirit Mm. of the people keeping that island afloat. But I think it's difficult to have a one-size-fits-all doctrine. And I think the trouble with utopia is, as I say, each of us has a different notion of heaven. And if we try to conform to a shared notion of heaven, I think probably we're cutting off some part of ourselves or sacrificing some kind of wholeness. So I think it's much harder to create a shared paradise than to find a singular one. And I do, um, early on in the book, talk about... um, collective visions of a better world and that's certainly mm. better than accepting the world as it is but um but probably also imperfect yeah and and another great linked question um does finding paradise depend on renouncing material possession possessions i know that's often linked to the the communist movement but not necessarily do can we can we have heaven on earth when we're attached to material artifacts well, we all need material artifacts. <laughs> I'm not a great believer in technology, but were it not for technology, I couldn't be talking to Catherine now and we couldn't be sharing this, this conversation. Um, you know, I've gone shopping for eyeglasses with the Dalai Lama. <laughs> and every morning when I step into his hotel room, I see there's a telescope there pointed out the window because he knows every stop he makes on his global travels, he'll get a different perspective on the heavens. So I think yeah, there's there's nothing wrong with um, material possessions, though we don't want to be their slave, and we don't want them to occlude the invisible things. Um, when I flew back to California at the beginning of the pandemic, and my mother was wavering between life and death, and she did die the following year, and I thought, what can I bring to support my mother and sustain myself? And I realized my bank account was not going to be helpful. Him. And in fact, the books I'd written were of no use. And whatever possessions I'd gathered, useless in that. The mm. only thing I could bring to that situation was whatever I'd gathered in, in the way of inner resources, my inner savings account. Uh, and so whether it's a pandemic or a car crash or a difficult diagnosis, in those moments of crisis, the material things tend not to help very much. 
So I'm as attached to my material things as anybody probably, but I don't want to assume that they're going to come to my rescue in in the many moments of difficulty I'm likely to face. And I don't therefore want to neglect the things that might come to my assistance there. Mm, wonderful. Um, there's a few questions about technology. I think think people know your antipathy towards technology quite well. Um, I'm going to ask you this one from Duncan Baird, uh, which is, do you worry that the world of AI and social media is going to crowd out spiritual searching, the pilgrimage of our lives? Um, will we forget how to be aware of what it is to truly be alive? That's yeah, beautifully not, put, Duncan. Very well put. I'm, I'm not so worried about that. And I must say, I'm not averse to technology. I just <laughs> think technology has given us everything except a sense of how to use, make wise and discerning use of technology. And for that, we have to go offline. Otherwise, technology yeah. is using us rather than the other way around. But I'm not worried um, about, about social media or AI, because I think every one of us faces crises. And um, as I was saying in answer to the last question, we know those are relatively immaterial. For example, when, when the pandemic came down, we were all really grateful that this technology allows us to be connected. But what would give us strength and confidence in that difficult moment? We knew AI at best would be a tool. And social media, too, would, would help us stay in touch with others, but might not be sustaining us in, in the deepest way. So I'm happy about all these developments because they've made our lives much richer and often healthier and longer, too. But um, uh, and I, I think when, when I talk about when the Tonkin was talking about a spiritual search, I think that is just a, another way of saying that any of us faced with a difficult situation longs for an answer and probably knows that there's no good answer. And so it doesn't matter if we're spiritually searching or not, I think. Um, all that matters is do we have any resources when suddenly the doctor comes into the room shaking his mm -hmm. head and saying, I've got bad news. Um, and that's the spiritual search. As, as the priest says, we don't need to be spiritual, just human. And how do we do it, deal with the human stuff of the fact we're not around forever? And how, how do we love in, in the face of loss? You know, we're going to lose most of our loved ones or lose ourselves before they are gone. Um, how do we live joyfully in the midst of that? Yeah, wonderful. And unfortunately, that's all we have time for. There's there's many more really great questions, and I'm I'm so sorry we can't tackle them all. But we are at the full hour, um, so I Pico, just wave your book one more time because everybody read. I'm going to wave the American one. Um, everyone really needs to to read this. It will take you into the the reflective space that you need right now. Look, all three. <laughs> Thank you so much. It's just been great to talk to you. Um, Catherine, really <laughs> such a privilege to talk to somebody who asks such searching and soulful questions. Um, thank you for caring about the book and reading it so oh, carefully. Absolutely. I'm really excited. Your book is the companion piece a month from now. We will <laughs> about how to find wonder in our everyday lives. So I'm really, really excited to read and learn perhaps, from that. Perhaps thank we you. can repeat this conversation in reverse. In a I will while. Ask you <laughs> yes, badly. So <laughs> we have a lot more to talk about, I think. <laughs> Pico, Catherine, thank you so much for that conversation. It was so wide ranging and, and soulful, I think was the word you used. It, it really was and has given us a lot to think about and, and reflect on. Um, as Catherine mentioned, Pico's book, The Half Known Life, is available now. And Catherine's book, Enchantment, will be published in March, the 9th of March. Is that right? I, yes. Uh, I'm just <laughs> going to look at the back of it yeah, to see what it right. says. 
Uh, yes, I think that sounds right. Eighth or yeah. ninth. <laughs> details of both our speakers' books are there in the chat for you to see. Thank you, everyone, for tuning in tonight, and thank you for your great questions. Um, and do take a look at our website for future events we have coming up. We have some some great events on next week, including a special five by fifteen event with the Moth about storytelling, uh, and a five by fifteen event on Jewish multiculturalism on Wednesday. Thank you all so much, Pico, Catherine. Thank you again, and good night. Good night, everyone. Thank you. Thank you, Jack.